0: Although we'll have one more lesson on the book of Hebrews that deals with the concluding matters and historical setting of the book, tonight is really the last lesson in terms of the theological teaching. I'm going to the theology and the other part too, to a minor extent. We're going to be looking at the benediction that concludes the book of Hebrews. So, if you turn your Bibles Hebrews, 13th chapter. I'll read the entire chapter. But our focus for studying will be verses 20 and 21. And there's so much there that we'll more than consume our time just looking at those two verses. let's begin with a little prayer. Father, we come to you tonight grateful that you are our Father (coughs) and that you show compassion for us as your children. We thank you that you call us your children and adopt us into your family we thank you that the love that you have for us is an eternal love, and that even before we were created, even before this entire world was created, you set your love upon us. And we know that after this world shall pass away and there's a new heavens and a new earth, your love will still be with us, will be constant into all eternity. Thank you for the stability of that love thank you that you are passionate for sending your own Son Jesus Christ into this world to demonstrate love by laying out his life for us. We also thank you that the Spirit of your Son Jesus Christ lives in us and gives us new life that we might learn how to love. that the Spirit might bring the fruit of love to us that we might love you above all and our neighbors as ourselves we might in this Christian community love <laughs> to love each other and to live sacrificially for each other. We ask you that you would bless us as we study your words now, so we would be drawn closer to you as your holy character and to one another in our commitment and compassion to one another. the beginning at Hebrews 13, the first verse, Let love of the brethren continue. Forget not to show love unto strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels, in a way. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, them that are ill as being yourselves also in the body. Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Be free from the love of money. Content with such things as you have, for yourself hath said, I But to do good and to communicate or to share, <coughs> forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them, for so they watch in behalf of your souls as they that send them account. That they may do this with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for them. Pray for us, for we are persuaded that we have a good conscience, resolving to live honorably in all things. And I exhort you the more exceedingly to do this, that I may be destroyed to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought again from the dead of the shepherd of the sheep, from the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, makes you perfect in every good thing to do as well, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, in whom he the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I exhort you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written unto you in few words. Oh. Know that our brother Timothy has been set at liberty with him, if he comes shortly, and I will see you. Salute <coughs> all them that have the rule over you in all the their ability to leave you, grace law. Uh, well, you to the There are two more You know what's that? The author says amen at the end of the benediction that he offers in verses 20 and 21. And then if you go here to postscript, you uh, go personal and uh, uh, historical or dixon leaving, that's the setting of life kind of consideration. And then he says amen again. Either he does or the scribes in the early days of the church automatically added that as well as indicated uh, in the verses of improvement. The conclusion that we will study tonight will be this benediction found in verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, makes me perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well pleasing in the sight Jesus Christ, the will of the glory forever and ever. This uh, should be considered the formal conclusion of the epistle. The benediction is one of the most stirring benedictions that we find in, in the scriptures. There are others. Actually, there are no benedictions in the Scriptures that I think we probably are aware of, or we think of uh, quite a few. Uh, many of them are very short and pungent, so they aren't as memorable. The apostolic benediction from the book of Numbers, which uh, uh, I commonly use uh, in my past for benedictions, but I certainly is a well known one. of the But there are many, many, many others. But of them, I think that's the best. about these things and so it and for us in the benediction of the time. I'm going to uh, have us look at a number of other apostolic benedictions that we find in concluding sections of epistles in the New Testament. And I'd like as we go through these for you to up, see if you can find a common thread in them. I'm sure you'll be able to, be enlightening. If you haven't studied benediction, this may be very profitable for you. But let's begin with uh, 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23rd verse (coughs) says, And the God of peace himself sanctify you fully, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved entire without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a benediction at the Lord of 2nd Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 16. Now the Lord of peace Himself gives you peace at all times in all ways. The Lord will with you all. And then at the end of Romans, there are two references that we should look at. Romans 15, 23. Romans 16, and 20. First of all, Romans 15, 33. Did I say 23? Mm-hmm. I 33. Mm-hmm. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Mm-hmm. Chapter 16, verse 20. Mm-hmm. And the God of peace shall so bruise Satan and be with you from further, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with me. And then Philippians 4, verse 9. First, 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 first. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to make the technical distinction, and by the way, it's the most feminist character, you don't have any idea of this distinction, and even from those yeah. members. And the ambassador to the Council, don't know the difference between a script and a phrase and a television. So I'll talk about that just mm-hmm. you'll Philippians 4 9. God uh, My question is now: Is anyone notice anything in common with all of these generations? Have you ever thought about that stuff before? I'm sorry? God at the end of your service or event. But that is not technically what it is. And even more. The Hebrew concept of Siloam, which is used in the New Testament, the Greek word, or the Reign of the Hebrew, is more than just, the know, of to Hawaiian culture, you know, the Hello and Messiah and the Reign of the Church kind of stuff. He summarizes all that should stand between God and man and man and man. It, it is the restoration, of uh, ruptured relationships because of the fall, is uh, the achievement of salvation before God and God's richest blessing upon them, not just for all eternity, but in this life as well. Shalom encompasses a great deal. Shalom calls for social justice, which is what he the Old Testament, not of peace. And so to pronounce Shalom, to, to have a good word from the God of peace, is really the pinnacle of all that our relationship with God is supposed to do. And so, uh, I want to study this concept of peace. I know, really long, I'm going to hear if I'm going to make it tonight. Um, first of all, notice that peace is the substance of the good news. There's another word, okay? The benediction good word. We also have Okay, The eangelion is the good news, a good announcement, favorable announcement. And the substance of the gospel is the good is in of peace. Acts 10.34. The word which he sent unto the children of Israel, preaching good tidings of peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Mm-hmm. What is that? The good tidings of what? What summarizes the message of the gospel? The first sheet, the pronouncement of God. What is the good news? Yeah, Immediately mean, we tell you that Jesus was with us. You know, actually read all about it. What is the good news? It's the same. i have really got good news for you, brother. You're keeping something. He's done something. He's done it too. And um, another passage, Matthew mm-hmm. six fifteen expression that uh, gives us this. Ephesians 6.15. In the description of the uh, Christian soldier we read, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The good tidings of the favorable announcement of peace from God. So the substance of the gospel is the word peace. The Bible says that this peace has been established between God and man by the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 1. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ's redemptive work that we have and brought into a relationship of peace with God and then Colossians 1 20 successfully I just see the blood of Christ Colossians 1 and through him to reconcile all things unto himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. And here might say, well, there's anything upon the earth or anything that happens to you. God has brought reconciliation to the created earth. And in fact, God has reconciled the creation to himself and he made Jesus through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's a real paradox. And I don't mean that. The cross is a symbol of violence isn't it? But in that bloody, violent transaction, God, Peace, peace. So the God of peace, who would be to peace, have the good tidings were peace has established this peace by the blood of Jesus Christ. By the Bible tells us of this peace that it passes all human understanding. Philippians 4 7. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall so guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. It is Great, just to spend half an hour or so discussing that idea. Peace, the passive understanding. I mean, I can describe that peace to a certain degree. There is a kind of understanding we have of it, but the point is, no matter of how much you study that peace, uh, there's something about the experience of it in the heart that goes very well and put into words. You means the fancy language, like it. it is fantastic, it cannot be put into words. If you don't know what I'm talking about, perhaps we should get together and chat because it's very likely if you haven't had that experience of what is it is to be a truth of God who wouldn't possibly say to anybody else, you may not have experienced the gospel. I know that is kind of like a mystical and all that, but I just know what they're mystically. There is a truth that God gives to us, that I couldn't in discursive and rational terms communicate. The path is always a standard. And uh, then finally, just a little uh, discourse on peace. The Bible teaches that it comes only through Jesus Christ. The only avenue for receiving his peace is Jesus Christ. John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I grant unto you, not as the world." Why not they have to trouble leaving them to the grave? That means it's an end to end the peace, that the world can't live. Now, going back to the book of Hebrews, and continuing with the baptism of peace and its benediction, and so on, the author says, the author says, the author says, Now the, the God of peace, He brought again from the dead, (coughs) the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus. The author sees the peace which Jesus communicates, with as tied to the Blood of His Cross, the author here sees this blood-establishing peace as the blood of an eternal covenant. It's on the basis of the blood of the eternal covenant. Well, yeah, this time here. So that comes to the cross of Jesus' history right as well. I want you to see the Old Testament background to this concept of the eternal covenant. Turn to Ezekiel 37, 26 Ezekiel 37, at the 26th verse. Prophet says within God's word. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, which shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them, and I will establish them, given to them, and multiply them, and will set up my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. God says I'm going to make an eternal covenant of peace with my people. This is referred to, it's uh, alluded to in Zechariah nine eleven. Zechariah nine, I should get a little more time. Zechariah nine eleven. As to thee be also, because of the blood of thy covenant I have set free thy prisoners in the pit, wherein there is no water. The blood of thy covenant, and the covenant of peace. The author of Hebrews seems to have brought together both these ideas. Here's another one passing, another possibly, another from Isaiah 55, verse 3. Isaiah 55. anticipates you. And your ear and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercy of David. Okay, so our author says, the God of peace by the blood of an eternal covenant. And he refers back to the psalmist of the Old Testament. So God is going to establish through blood, is sometimes and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Through blood, God will establish a relationship between himself and his people that will be characterized by peace, an eternal covenant of peace. Earlier in the same Epistle of Hebrews, the author has spoken of the eternal inheritance which we receive, Hebrews 9.15, and so this cause he's the mediator of a new covenant. For the death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions which were under the first covenant, they that have been called to receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The new covenant brings an eternal inheritance. And this is tied in chapter 10, verse 29, to the concept of blood again. But how much more punishment thanks thee shall he be judged worthy, who hath frauded in the church the Son of God, and it's counted the blood of the covenant, where it have to be washed by the unholy So we have the concept of blood establishing covenant and eternal kind of peace by means of that arrangement. What is the covenant? Covenant. And we between to people. In the case of God's covenant, it's an agreement established sovereignty by God. It's not a negotiated act. God comes and declares the terms of the covenant. And what is it in God's covenant that he promises? Above all, it's a covenant. He will be our God and that the other side of the coin is we will be his people. God establishes that. with whom does God establish such a covenant? He establishes it with rebels, with sinners, with people who do not have that coming to them. They cannot offer to God anything in any return. It's not God came to him and you do so much for me, then I'll do so much for you. Such a covenant would be out of the question that he's dealing with sinners. And so it must be a gracious covenant. God, he says, not only returns over, but God establishes the covenant by his own mercy. And then how does God show mercy for sin? What is the cause of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. And then in the day of you are poor, you shall truly die. And the symbol of death, of course, is blood or blood shedding. And so when Christ came into this world and laid down his life to shed his blood, it was horrible. It was in order to establish that gracious covenant. And it's thing is, God not only declares the terms, God is the term. It's not legalistic, in any sense. God declares that there must be death that must be the price, and then He can descend to live Often Hebrews says the God of peace. It's a very good concept now, isn't it? I and mean, how much took their background and passed into them, God is establishing his alone His reconciliation, His blessing in our lives by the blood of a covenant a pact that He has created made in this way through the blood of His own son. Now, what is the proof that the sacrifice, the blood shedding of His uh, son has been accepted? How has God been defeated his son, who is the mediator of this covenant, for the answer is in our verse here. You see another concept there, that shows vindication and acceptance? No? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He raised me from the dead. That was the song spoken with the an answer really that to be really in God. The resurrection. With God's declaration that the sacrifice is acceptable, and not only was the sacrifice is acceptable, but the will offering the sacrifice, is righteous in the eyes right of God. Look at Acts, um, the second chapter, verse 31. Acts 2, verse 31. See the incision of the day of Pentecost here. And referring to David's uh, words in the psalm. He says, He foresees this, both of the resurrection of Christ, that neither was He left unto Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption. You'll yeah. quoted he David in Psalm sixteen. Uh, I beheld the Lord always before my face, and he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, and the my flesh also shall dwell in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul overheath, neither wilt thou give thy holiness to incorruption. It's just because Jesus is God's holiness that his flesh did not be corrected. He raised him from the dead to demonstrate his righteousness, his holiness. His acceptance before that. First mention of Jesus Christ is powerful way in which God declares that Jesus is Lord. Look at Philippians 2, verses 8 to 10. Philippians 2, verses 8 to 10. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself becoming obedient even unto death yes, the death of the cross. Wherefore also oh, oh, God highly exalted him and the name which is above every name, in the name of Jesus, every name should bow, things on heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every time should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ is part of this process by which God is going to make every knee bow and say, Jesus is Lord. Look at Romans 1, verse 5. You're singing. Romans 1 verse 5, through him, excuse me, verse 4, who was declared to be Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, of Jesus Christ the Lord. What did the resurrection do? It declared him to be Son of God with power. He was Son of God before the resurrection, wasn't he? Maybe he was some people think he was adopted as God's son of the resurrection. Now we don't believe that. He was the son of God before the resurrection. But he was not the son of God of his power, because he came what? In humiliation. There is the office of Jesus as King, as mediator of the covenant, in humiliation and then in glory or exaltation. And the resurrection marks the transition in testament the theology. Now he's declared to be Son of God with power by the resurrection. Every new bow he tells him to be Lord. The resurrection is central to the Christian message. Look at Acts 17, verse 18. Acts 17, verse 18. Paul speaking to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in Athens. Here's uh, the response. Some said, What would this babbler say? Others, he seems to be setting forth strange gods because, as Luke said, he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And one the word resurrection on Astonus in Greek as a feminine form and Jesus being masculine kind of The Greek philosophers thought that Paul was referring to a male and female God to be added to you know uh, pantheon Jesus uh, in the resurrection. But nevertheless that tells us we know better than to take it that way But uh, uh, the summary of Paul's message was Jesus the resurrected one. And in first Corinthians, so as you know very well, this chapter uh, chapter Paul says the copy of this word. So that Jesus is not raised from the dead, but our preaching is empty. this day And your faith is pure. faith is uh, useless So the resurrection is central to your Christian message. The God of peace has established a covenant in the blood of his Son who was resurrected from the dead. But now, who is this Son? The author is this tyrant Theological concepts, the theological concepts. Because he's really said quite enough already, right? The pacemaker, the reconciler, the mediator of the covenant, the high priest, the sacrifice, the one who is all powerful and the Lord, raised from the dead. All these concepts that build into his benediction, Then he adds another one. Because the one he's talking about, who's done all these things, he calls this great shepherd. Of the sheep. Now the God of peace who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep to the blood blood of the eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Peter speaks of him in first Peter chapter two, verse twenty-five, in this way, for you were going astray like sheep, but now are returning to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is again uh, called our shepherd. Now the Old Testament often referred to Jehovah as the shepherd of his people. You know the best passage There's that Psalm 23, the shepherd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And the Lord there is really the, uh, uh, the Adamite equivalent to the Hebrew word Yahweh, Jehovah. Is my shepherd. Yeah. Psalm seventy-eight verse fifty-two. He led forth his own people like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. God shepherded Israel through the wilderness. Psalm eighty verse one. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. So we see it in the Psalms. We see it in the Prophets, too. Jeremiah 31, 10. Hear the word of Jehovah, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. And say, He that scattereth Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Ezekiel 34 declares the same promise in similar terms. As a shepherd seeks out his flock. And then in chapter 34, verse 23. Ezekiel says, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them and shall be their shepherd. The promise that David will come and gather God's people together in one flock, and shepherd them. And the perception of the Messiah as the shepherd is used in the Bible in reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension. There are a lot of different concepts in the Bible that you can use to uh, kind of organize the theology around, and uh, one of the most interesting ways of doing that is around the shepherd images in the Bible. So this book's an aggressive work of Jesus Christ focusing on the shepherd analogy. Isaiah 40, and also the say to the afflicted, verses 10 and 11, Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom. Messiah is coming. He will act as a shepherd to his people. Well, how does the Messiah come? Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, quotes Micah, the 5th chapter, verse 3. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written to the prophet, and thou al- Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor who shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. Micah declares about the birth of the Messiah, who be born as the shepherd of Israel. Matthew 26, verse 31 tells us that Christ at that point quoted Zechariah thirteen seven at the end of the Lord's Supper. For it is is written, He says, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. The smiting of the shepherd that God would send into the world is part of the shepherd's ministry. He's going to be struck down and will be crucified. Revelation 7 verse 17 says, For the Lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd. And shall guide them into fountains of living water, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. The exaltation of Christ as the Lamb of God is the exaltation of him as the shepherd of his people, the Lamb that is the shepherd, in this is the combination of images. But I suppose the, the passage of Yule best of all, in terms of all this, matter when Jesus, Messiah, as our shepherd, it's Jesus' own words in John 10. Right? I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, verses 11 and 14. Now of Hebrews calls him the great shepherd. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, calls him the chief shepherd. And the reason why Peter does that is because he goes on to describe elders as shepherds they're not the chief shepherds. Jesus is. They model their ministry after Jesus. They take their orders from Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. Obviously, the Hebrews though calls him a the great shepherd, the shepherd of shepherds, the shepherd that is above all others. What do shepherds do? Two verses and then just have to This is this is just Wonderful stuff. I'm sorry. Let me back anyway, the shepherd very quickly. I'll summarize it. Shepherds show courage. What does Jesus say about the good shepherd? The hireling flees when a wolf attacks the sheep, but the good shepherd is willing to die to protect them. And that's why Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Anybody else who has come run away. Because when the going gets rough, I'm going to be able to die for you. Courage. The Compassion, Luke 15, verses three to six. The shepherd is aware when the young sheep is missing from the flock of a hundred, right? He goes out looking for the young, missing sheep. I don't know a lot about sheep, but what I do know it doesn't encourage me to think well of them. I tend to be dumb, you know, and they follow this message. Can you imagine the shepherd working hard to get all the sheep finally to lay down Get in your places, hold so still, stop wandering off, and count them. And then he counts them again. because I've got to have made a mistake yeah. But every time you counts, to thinks take one shirt. What would you do? I said, ah. I'm not going to give up on 99 here. This is a pain. The good shepherd says, for the sake of the one, I'll be looking for And brings him back. The compassion of the good shepherd. carry the good shepherd, of course, in the shepherd's song. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down, bring pastures. He restores my soul more easily besides full waters. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. That's how the kind of it is. Care of That's what I depend upon it. Because it carries me, body and soul. And then, of course, as I've said, John 10, verses 28 to 29, the epitome of that courage, compassion, and care in the great shepherd of the sheep. John 10, verses 28 and 29. But Jesus himself declares. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them unto me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now up to this point the author of Hebrews has done nothing but describe the subject of this book. The source of the benediction that he's going to declare. Because we don't get from what he, what he pronounces upon us until verse um, 21. All of verse 20, which we're taking this entire lesson to study, has talked about the God of peace, the God again from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus. A lot of theological, heavy duty stuff down Now the benediction is, this God of peace that I told you that do what? Make you perfect and every good thing to do as well, working in it that which is well, pleasing in his life in Jesus Christ to live the glory forever and ever. Amen. He describes God as the subject and source of the work that's to be accomplished in verse 21, and that's the work of sanctification. May he perfect you in good works. It's God's work in at us. It's God who works out his works. A good work is not one to be accomplished in our own strength or by our own direction. But the work of God in us, the gracious work of God in us, must result in good work. That is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10 say, For by grace are you saved through faith. But not of yourselves that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his work. that he afford to care, you should go with good works. So the grace of God produces good works in us. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, God is the God of covenant, peace. he's the gracious God. Give unto you give under this blessing of God, what they'll do is create in you a life of good works. That works picked in perfectly to the plain life of believers. You're tempted to fall back from your devotion and the following of Jesus Christ. But if you really under the covenant of peace that has been established the resurrection of the good serpent, then what's going to happen is God is going to work in you so that your lives are perfected in good works. I'll say a little bit more about that in the next week's lesson. But as i that Lord will the last.